Hey everybody, this is Gus G, and you're listening to Diary of a Madman, the Ultimate Aussie Podcast. Hello, welcome back to Diary of the Mad Men, the ultimate Ozzy Osbourne podcast where we geek out about everything Ozzy and Ozzy related. I am Josh Crum, and with us as always is Dan. Good morning. How you doing, Josh? I'm doing good, man. How you doing? I'm doing really good. Did you have a good weekend? I did. You know, it was the opening weekend for football season for college football, and that's always exciting in our part of the world. I went down to the University of Kentucky because that's the team I support. I went down to their first game of the season, and it was nice. kind of cool, man. I was actually excited to tell you about this. Uh, I was walking into the tunnel, and I could hear the rhythm, and I thought to myself, man, that sounds like No More Tears. And as I wow. came through the tunnel and opened up to the field, of course, No More Tears was blaring stadium-wide, and I felt like it was my own personal introduction to the stadium that day. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I love the song choice. Yeah, I know, man. It, you know, no crazy train, no right. paranoid or Iron Man. So I was kind of proud of the DJ. And then I was sitting there waiting for the game to start. I was there about 15 minutes before kickoff. And I swear, no shit, they started playing Into the Void. Wow, that is a deep cut. Holy cow. I know, man. I'm so proud of my uh, University of Kentucky Wildcat DJ, whoever was manning the helm that day. I Definitely kudos to that cat. Actually, before a third down later on, they also did Iron Man. So I'm definitely proud, and they represented the Aussie world uh, in University of Kentucky in Lexington this week. So that was pretty cool. How about you? That's fantastic. Well, real quick, did the fans even know Into the Void, or were they bobbing their head, or was it just kind of you were the one going crazy and they didn't even know the song? Yeah, it was kind of background because it was just pregame, and everyone's kind of waiting for the team to come out. And That's cool, though. I mean, hats off to them. I mean, it's great not hearing just Crazy Train all the time. So, you know, I exactly. love the song choices. Even Iron Man. I'll take Iron Man. Exactly. I'll tell you, I believe that started. We have a player who's, uh, he played for UK. He graduated, I want to say the season before last. His name was Cash Daniel. And Cash is actually from my part of the state. He's an in-state kid, but he had offers to go pretty much anywhere in the country. He almost went to Florida. He almost went to South Carolina. He ended up at Kentucky, stayed home. And Cash said recently in an interview well, about a year ago, that he would blast heavy metal music in the in the locker room before the games. And he had talked to them about, you know, playing Metallica. And he actually said Black Sabbath and stuff like that uh, in the pregames and stuff. So I think Cash Daniel might have had a, a long way of going to get that started for the University of Kentucky. So I'm definitely proud of uh, my mountain boy for representing Sabbath pretty well downstate and really on a national level in, in bringing out the, you know, the classic hard rock in the pregame with the UK games. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, even when I'm watching games on TV and I hear Ozzy blast or Sabbath through the television, uh, my ears perk up right away, and I'm like, oh, they're, they're playing Ozzy, they're playing Ozzy. It's just oh, yeah. so exciting. But like you said, it's usually you know it's usually crazy trains, so it's pretty cool to hear something different. But uh, what did you get into this weekend, man? Well, I really dove deep into the new Maiden record. I, I've you know it's out for a couple of days now, and I've probably listened to it completely about five times. And overall, I'm really pleased with it. You know, I think Maiden, like all the classic bands, you know, that we all grew up with, everything from their debut through Seventh Son of a Seventh Son is untouchable. But I have to say, I'm really enjoying their new record, Sinjitsu, and I think it's probably their best since A Matter of Life and Death, I'd, I'd feel comfortable saying. What about you? What do you think of it so far? Yeah, man, I, I really enjoyed it also. I listened through it, I want to say I listened through it twice Friday. I had uh, some service work done to my vehicle, so I had some time to kind of kill uh, in the waiting room of a, of a local dealership here. So I listened to that through a time or two. And, you know, i got to say, I was disappointed with the album length when you told me, you know, the last podcast that it was like an hour 22 or whatever. And I was kind of like, ugh. But I have to admit, listening to it, it didn't feel that long. The song that really stood out to me was The, the Days of Future Past. I absolutely love that opening riff to that, man. That has such a good groove to it. Damn it, uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. You stole my thunder as usual. <laughs> it's an awesome riff, man. That Fucking is such fantastic. a cool lick, man. That is That was a cool lick. And you know one thing that they did that I appreciate, too? They didn't overkill it. Like, that lick is so cool, but it's it's in that moment. They don't 
repeat it 25 times throughout the song. Like it's just that awesome moment of that song that they stick to. And I just, I really enjoyed that one, but as a whole, the album, I, I really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, to be honest with you. Yeah. So for me, days of future past lost in a lost world is also a fantastic track. Of course, the two singles I'm in love with Stratego and uh, the writing on the wall. I'd say the first five songs are really solid and I love the last 30 minutes, which is the last three Harris songs. They're all wonderful epics, but there is a part of my brain that goes, if they wouldn't have included the time machine and darkest hour, I think this would have been an even more incredible record. I think they could have cut those two songs. It would have shortened the time length. It would have been eight songs. And I really, really felt like it would be up there with brave new world as, as a amazing modern day maiden record. Those two songs definitely dragged the album down for me. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with eight songs. I mean, all the classic albums that we all know and love so much are usually eight songs. And there's definitely nothing wrong with eight songs when the album length is still over an hour. Yes. So uh, they, they really could have or just put those as, as B-sides. You know, I really like it really never got spoken about a lot of the time. But, you know, when Black Sabbath released 13 and they had, you know, what, 16 cuts for that. Right. They released eight and said, this is the album. But we also have for sale this other version, the deluxe version with four bonus tracks. I love that idea. Don't judge us on these extra four. We're going to go ahead and give you these also. But this is the album. More bands should do that. Agreed. I, I definitely don't think they shouldn't have been released. I think B-sides or bonus editions for sure. But I definitely think they could have been left off the main record because that it, it would have flowed much quicker. Every song is strong except those two. Absolutely. Just tag them at the end and write bonus track out beside of it. And, you know, there's an expectation with bonus tracks that they're not as good anyway. So, like, it lowers your guard. So when you hear a bonus track, you expect not to like it as much as the others. So then when they do come out and they're pretty strong, it makes you probably appreciate them more than you would have otherwise. Yeah, it's a great point. Like, I love Peace of Mind off of 13. We'll have a 13 episode here soon. And I do think that should have made the main 13 record. But a song like Pariah, it's strong. It's a cool tune. But I, I could see that one being left off. Agreed 100%. Yeah. Of those four, for me, I mean, I think Methodemic was the one that stood out for everybody. I would, this is definitely something we'll get into, like you said, in another episode. I'm, I'm anxious to talk about 13 sometime sooner rather than later, but right. I would have taken Live Forever, replaced that with Methodemic, but that's just me. Yeah, Methodemic is fantastic. I, there is something about peace of mind that speaks to me. I think it's a great riff, a great vocal melody by Ozzy. We know it's an odd structure, and we know there's a lot of information that they left off. You know, they, they cut that song radically in uh, edits, but I would love to hear the full version because it's out there somewhere. Absolutely. So that said, you have big news for us. Do you care to go ahead and fill us in on what's going on in your your world right now? Yeah, absolutely, and thank you. So I'm really excited this Friday, which is tomorrow. I'm releasing my debut solo record, The Dream Is Over. You can listen to it wherever you stream music. I'm really, really excited about it. It's six songs. I've been working on it since the first of the year, and it came out great. I recorded everything at my own home studio and vocals. We recorded at a fantastic Phoenix, Arizona studio called Steampunk Audio Labs. But this is uh, material that I've been writing that is a little bit different. It's a little bit more in the Beatles oasis rock vibe not so much the metal vibe even though i got guitars going throughout the whole thing because i can't get away from guitars of course but i wrote the melodies the lyrics and i had a, a lot of my close friends come in and sing them because my voice just isn't up to speed but something i'm really really excited about and if you know our listeners check it out i'd be forever grateful yeah guys check it out dan drago d-r-a-g-o i have heard it it's absolutely phenomenal dan i couldn't be more excited for you man and proud of you we both have played in band situations for the past 20 years or, or better, but there's something so intimate about doing your own thing and sticking your own name out there that I know you're, you know, it's nerve wracking. I know you're excited about it and scared about it. And it's finally here. You've worked so hard on it in the last few weeks, especially with the mixing and editing and everything. So I know you've put your heart and soul into it. And man, I really hope it takes off for you and does really well. But I've heard it. I can tell you, you know, I definitely enjoyed it. It's, it, it is different than anything you've ever done in the past. But that's what's great about it. You know, you're stepping into a new world. It's an exciting time. So congratulations, man. And I hope it does well. Thank you so much, Josh. And other exciting news, we want to talk about how our podcast, Dyer the Mad Men, is now part of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. And we're super excited to be a part of it. A bunch of great guys and a bunch of great podcasts. So here's some of the podcasts that are in this network with us. We have the Deep Purple Podcast. The Sabbath Bloody Podcast, which is another fantastic podcast on Black Sabbath. In the Lap of the Pods, which is a Queen podcast. Skinnerd Reconsidered, a Leonard Skinner podcast. Hawk Binge, a podcast about Hawkwind. 
Maiden A to Z, which you all should be listening to heavily right now, as I'm sure they're talking a lot about their new record. Red Hot Chili Pepper podcast, universally speaking. T-Bone's Prime Cuts, which is a podcast that is all-encompassing, where he dives deep into a lot of different music. And The Magician's podcast about Uriah Heap. We're really, really happy and excited to be a part of this podcast network. Yeah, we really have. They reached out to us. I guess about a week, week and a half ago, and, and just told us how much they enjoyed our podcast. Uh, some of their listeners had recommended us to them to, to check us out. They did, and they're definitely fans of ours, and we appreciate that. And you know, we're going to check theirs out too in due time. You know, there's so many of them with to give them all their own time and place to check them out. You know, you can't check them all out in one day, but uh, they definitely reached out to us with open arms, and we really appreciate that. And they're promoting our podcast. And you know, that, that means the world to us because when you're just starting out, man, and you don't really have a base yet, it's really hard to get out there. And people like that reaching out to you is what helps. And the Sabbath Bloody podcast in particular, you know, those guys can be considered rivals to us, but it's not that way at all. Like He has been absolutely exceptional to reach out to us, let us know how much he's enjoyed the podcast. And he told us straight up, anything I can do to help, let me know. And uh, we really appreciate that. And we appreciate all those guys listening and reaching out to us. Yeah, agreed. And, of course, we still have Bod's Mayhem Hour, who we work with directly, John the Bod. He's the man. He's helped us from the start. Without John, we wouldn't even be doing this. He's, he kept on our ass about doing this. So, you know, good people all around in the podcasting world who have really reached out and tried to help out and uh, taken us all in, man. We really appreciate that. So, you know, thank you guys for that. Yeah. How, hats off to John Marshall. He is an amazing guy. And without John, we wouldn't be here right now. Guys, check out his podcast. It's fantastic. You know, he just interviewed Frank Bello last week and, and made national news with it. So, you know, definitely he's on the cutting edge right now. Check out Bod's Mayhem Hour. Fantastic metal podcast. No, yeah, that Frank Bellow interview is one I really suggest people to check out because it's a live interview and it does have video also if you prefer to watch the video version. But Frank really got deep with John about his life growing up and being bullied and picked on, what it was like for him, you know, in the streets and what it's like for a lot of people, you know, around our country right now. And they really dove into some deep topics. It wasn't just about his latest album or anything like that. Like they really dove into some stuff. I definitely suggest anyone who has the opportunity to listen to it, go check it out. Yeah, for sure. And even though he did spill the beans on Anthrax's latest album a little bit when he wasn't supposed to, hats off to John for having such a fantastic deep dive interview. Yeah, they got in a little trouble over there, but that's all right. It's like I say, better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Hey, absolutely. So how excited are you about today's uh, interview, man? Hey, man, this is huge. What are we, six episodes in, and we already have Gus G on the fucking show? Are you kidding me, man? This That's is awesome. Cat right. is out of the bag. We interviewed Gus G a few days ago, and we are just so pleasantly pleased to have him. What a gentleman. What a legendary guitar player. I've been a fan of Gus G since the early 2000s when he was in Dream Evil, Mystic Prophecy, Firewind, Night Rage, legendary guitar player in the underground metal scene. And the fact that he played on Ozzy Scream, which is, you know, obviously Josh and I are big fans of, it was definitely very personal and, and an amazing experience to have this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Not just Scream, but the, you know, the tours that preceded it. I mean, the, those are some of the best tours Ozzy's had in the past 30 years. We've talked about it on the show before how excellent the scream tour was and we talk about it actually with gus about how the band really jailed that tour really ended up being a special one and he he talks a lot about how excited ozzy was for the group in that moment in time so we won't discuss it we'll let you hear it straight from the horse's mouth but you know gus checked in with us all the way from greece which was extremely awesome i mean we were talking across the globe with someone about something that we all love and it's you know the music of ozzy osbourne above all else so it was it was really cool for him to check in with us and our time zones were definitely jacked up they initially asked us to reach out at four o'clock in the morning my time and i think that would have been one in the morning your time but gus's time it would yeah and gus's time it would have been like 10 a.m so right. we definitely we had to work with three different time zones to make this bad boy happen we're definitely glad it did and what an awesome guest to have on the podcast man he couldn't be sweeter he was he was he was excellent he was and, and, and i'm glad you brought that up because sound quality for the interview isn't quite up to what we normally are you know we had to make it work we're continuing the work in progress to get our sound professional as possible every single podcast and we're getting better and better every week so just as a heads up up with with Gus in, in Greece, sometimes it's a little hard to hear him at times. We're yeah. super, super excited to present you, Gus G. Today is a true pleasure to honor and honor to welcome back with us the true Greek freak, guitar virtuoso Gus G. How's it going, Gus? Hey, Josh. Hey, Dan. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Thank you for having uh, some time for us this morning. Absolutely, man. Totally a pleasure to have you on. You know, we're kind of a new podcast. It, it really has taken off quick. 
And Dan and I were discussing earlier, just the fact that we're already getting guests of your stature is just absolutely mind-blowing to us, man. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Sure, man. My pleasure. Yeah, good to talk to you guys. Your new album comes out on October 8th, and it's called Quantum Leap. We're really, really excited for it. We've been dying for a Gus G instrumental album for a long time now. What made this the right time to release an instrumental record? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because obviously, you know, the the, the world went into lockdown mode somewhere in the middle of uh, 2020. And, uh, you know, like every tour musician out there, I, I myself found, found myself to, you know, getting all my tours canceled and everything. And uh, I was just stuck at home. So um, you can you can say you can blame this album on the pandemic in a way. It was just a, a, a right time, the right time for me to write some new music. I thought, well, probably going to be stuck here for a while. So what else is there to do? So I just started piling some riffs and ideas. And um, I think it was about, I think last summer I made the decision to, okay, well, maybe this is the perfect time to do this instrumental record that I've always thought about and people always bug me about. And um, yeah, because I couldn't really, you know, meet anybody or go to a studio or yeah, it was just basically just me hanging at home in my home studio. And I saw, just thought I would do everything. I would write everything. No vocals this time. Yeah, it just felt like this was the time to try this out. Um, so I'm glad I did it. Yeah. So do you typically write the vocal melodies for Firewind in your solo stuff as well? Or is that the singers that you, that you work with? Uh, not really. You know, I usually collaborate either if it's a co-producer or um or the singer you know me and the singer will go back and forth with ideas sometimes i have some vocal melody ideas that i'll suggest but usually i'll prefer that the singer comes up with something different and surprises me and uh, i like to i just like to, to stick to you know when i write for vocals i just like to stick to the, to the music and the arrangement and um and then leave the rest to the singer. You know, if I have like an, a, a title or some ideas, I'll, of course I'll, I'll put them on the table. But uh, usually I'll, I'll I'll leave it up to the singer. Or if I'm writing with somebody else, like a like a co-producer or somebody, yeah, I'll, we'll do it like that. How much does the approach change? Like, do you know, you know, if you you know create a cool riff, do you kind of feel like, well, this has more of an instrumental feel to it? How is the approach different for an instrumental track versus one you may want to put vocals on later? Well, it was actually a, that was the part of the the process here, you know, I, I kept asking myself the same thing, like, okay, so what is this idea and what what am I going to do here with this album? Like, we have no singer, so obviously the guitar has to take up all that space, somehow has to cover that space that is missing, which is the vocals. You know, some songs are more complicated than others, it depends. Uh, on some songs I just went, you know, I was just more adventurous with arrangements and stuff like that, whereas on other songs it was just kind of like a typical thing where it would be like a verse, chorus, verse type of thing that I would normally write for vocals. But, you know, instead of coming up with vocal melodies, I came up with guitar melodies and, and or tried to, to, to try to get creative and add different layers of, of, um, of harmonies and stuff like that. It was interesting for me to, to try to do that. You know, I've, I've done instrumental songs, of course, throughout my career, but, you know, a song here and there on the track list, but never like sit down and write like 10 songs. So it, it was interesting, you know. I had to really dig deeper, in, if in a sense, you know, for uh, or you know, try to find other things like how how can I cover this space with my guitar? How can I, you know, how can I get creative here? How can I push the envelope at the same time? You know, try to come up with cool stuff, and how can you find the great balance between showcasing like a certain skill, but also you know, serving the the, the purpose of 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 the song. So it was it was interesting. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think Enigma of Life is a good example of that. You know, typically with guitar virtuoso instrumental albums, there's so much shred that the songs kind of run together almost. And Enigma of Life, the thing that really stood out to me about that one, which is your latest single, it, it's very melodic. And the tempo is definitely not uh, as up-tempo as most guitar shredding tracks are. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot more harmonies, a lot more uh, soulful um bends and moods so that kind of stuck out for that reason so when you were describing that a second ago that was immediately the song that i thought of kind of uh, interesting because that song was one of the easiest ones to write in the sense that it came to me fast like it was it was just one of those things i just you know strum those chords on, the, on an acoustic guitar and i put down the, the backing track fairly quickly and it was easy and i just kept hearing that melody in my head right away it was like one of those songs that just come to you and then there's other songs that 
I really had to fight to, 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 to finish them and really had to do so many versions and so many different rearrangements and, and erasing different riffs and adding other things. Like the first single, Exosphere, that was one of the most difficult songs to, to complete. Originally was way more technical and had so many parts. And I, I was like, I would listen back. I would, you know, I would finish the track and then wake up the next morning and listen back. And I'll be like, wow, this song really isn't saying anything right now. So it needs to be redone. So so I did certain, a lot of revisions on that, on a song like Exosphere. Whereas Enigma of Life, like you mentioned, it was, yeah done in 15 minutes all i had to worry about just right getting the right feel on my lead playing and maybe go back and fix some lead stuff and that was it one of the things that i noticed already about your three singles that you've released is they're all very diverse and and i know you're a super prolific writer but i think it already stands out you know i think josh nailed it a lot of guitar virtuoso records kind of fall into that boat where all the tracks start sounding the same but exosphere enigma of life and fierce they're all radically different I mean, Fierce just ripped my head off. What a, what a fantastic track. But like yeah. Josh, I think Enigma of Life is just beautiful. You know, yeah, I, I, I also kept thinking what you just mentioned. When I was making the record, I was like, oh, God, I don't want to fall into that loop of making that, that really boring instrumental guitar record that nobody will care for. That, oh, it's like 10 backing tracks and the guy's just soloing over for 45 minutes. I really wanted to stay away from that. Uh, it's intimidating, you know, because you got the classics out there. You know, you got your your Joe Satriani classic records, your Steve Vai classic records, and you know, so it's 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 hard to 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 compete with with, with stuff like that. And and I try to be inspired by my favorite guitar players and, and see how they do it, and try to get ideas and try to implement that into my uh, yeah into my own vibe and style. And yeah, I guess trying to have variety is one of the things I try to do always, even on firing records, you know, which is obviously more, you know, geared like towards power metal and all that stuff and classic heavy metal. I, I was thinking at the same time, well, you know, making an instrumental record should be an opportunity for diversity. It should be an opportunity to, you know, you can go like, no, there's, there's, you know, the sky's the limit. You can do whatever. You can do a, 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 an electronic track if you want. You can do a metal track if you want. You can do a blues track. Why not? You can play acoustic stuff. So, you know, there's a little bit of everything in there. Yep. And you got to play with Vinnie Moore on the record as well, which is really exciting. Oh, yeah. Vinnie's one of my all-time favorite guys, man. Uh, I mean, that song is actually an older single. It's three years old. Yeah, it, it is three years old. It was one of those things that I, I, I made that song actually during the, the sessions of Fearless. Or maybe right after Fearless album was done. I had the song already, but I, for some stupid reason i decided not to put it on the record and uh and then after the record came out i'm like well i have this great song maybe i should ask Vinny to play a solo because we were going to go on tour in the states so we put it out as a single and then that was that and and that song became one of my most most kind of not i wouldn't say successful but you know i would say like most recognizable solo song you know so and and, and whenever i played live it goes down great and when i decided to do the instrumental record, I was like, well, yeah, I should include Force Majeure as well because it's out there as a single, but maybe it would be cool for people to have it as a on a full track list, you know, on, on an album. Yeah, absolutely. It helps other people find it who may not have seen it before. One thing right. you said earlier that I found interesting, you mentioned, you know, competing with your Satrianis and with Steve Vai. You know, but one thing we talked about is not, you said not shredding too much and doing a 45-minute shred that can kind of get boring. But, you know, when you think about Satriani and like Summer Song, they, it has those moments of melody that stick in your head. So even though there's no lyrics, you still can hear that melody. You know, I think that is the key also to writing an instrumental album, to find those moments that will still stick in someone's head, even though there's not lyrics behind them. To me, to me, Satriani is the king of instrumental hard rock. Yeah, that, that, that guy is the king. Like, if you, if you want to hear how, you know, a guitar the closer the guitar gets to a voice, that's the guy you want to listen to, you know? So uh, that's where you take examples from. And um, I definitely did, uh, I went back and listened to a lot of, re, you know, rediscovered and re, re-listened to a lot of the old Satriani records that I grew up listening to. And I was like, wow, okay, so this is how he does it. This is how he develops a melody. This is how, yeah, this is how he develops an idea and, and makes it interesting and cool and keeps you listening for, you know, four or five minutes you know, per, per song. Really inspired stuff there. And then you got your Steve I, you know, who you got Steve I, who, you know, goes into Frank Zappa mode and gets experimental and all that. It's cool, you know, it's, it was inspiring to go back to those older records and listen to them again. I mean, obviously, there's there's no competition there with, with 
those guys. I mean, they are the kings of that stuff. But it's, it was just inspiring. Like uh, for me, it was like I try to keep that in mind as an example of okay, you know, you want to make a record that you know that's more like those guys instead of like something that's just an endless shredding backing track. You know, so that's what you want to avoid. <laughs> yeah, I agree totally. Who were your early influences when you were just starting playing guitar when you were a young Gus G growing up? No, I, I mean it was uh, all kinds of things, man. Um, it was uh, classic rock. You know, I used to listen to a lot of the Doors. So Robbie Krieger uh, was an influence when I was very nice. young, and Peter Frampton and, and stuff like that, and Jimi Hendrix. And then I got into heavy metal when I was 15 or 16. You know, Tony Iommi. That was like a life-changing moment when I heard Sabbath. And then another life-changing moment was when I heard Ingrid Malmsteen because that was what turned me on to the more technical stuff. Right. So, you know, discovering Ingbe and Satriani and, and Vi and, 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 and guys like that, you know, and Paul Gilbert and like the whole shrapnel scene of the 80s, Marty Friedman. Dan and I are both guitar players also. So when you say Tony Iommi was a life-changing moment, trust me, we feel that. <laughs> we totally understand what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Even, I mean, at that point, before I heard Sabbath, actually, I think I heard Metallica because that was on MTV at the time. Right, early '90s and, and Nirvana, and I was really into that as well. You know, I loved Nirvana, and I loved the Black Album by Metallica. And that was like my generation stuff. But and then a friend of mine gave me a tape of uh, I think it was Master of Reality, and and think about that, like that was a record that came out 20 years before the Black Album had come out, and, right. and it hit me so hard. It was like, whoa, what is this? Like, this is so heavy. And the cool thing about Sabbath was always, you know, and at least that's what the teenager myself thought that okay, this is, this is so cool, so heavy, and it's easy to learn as well. You know, it, it was not like super technical or anything. Like you could literally, like if you could play a power chord, you could play pretty much any Sabbath song. So it was instantly the coolest music to jam along to. That's, what, that's why I fell in love with Sabbath, because I could put on the, the cassette at home and I could just jam to those songs right away. And that was great. That was inspiring. So you bring Dennis Ward back to produce and play bass, which I'm really excited about being a big Unisonic and Pink Green 69 fan. How did your relationship mature and how did you guys start working together? I know he sang and played on Fearless. You know, where did your relationship start? It's kind of funny. Actually, I can, I can tell you. I mean, I first met Dennis, it was in 2000, uh, I think, 8 or 9. We were supposed to start a project because... I think his band, uh, yeah, Pink Room 69, was the same management as um, Halloween, um, bottom row management. And, and I knew the guys there, and they wanted to put a project around myself, and they were trying to get Michael Kiske of, of ex-Halloween. Oh, wow. Now in, back in Halloween. So they were Halloween. trying to make that, that project happen back then. And the idea was to write some songs together with Dennis Ward, and he, Dennis was going to produce it. That's how I met Dennis. And I think I wrote three or four tracks, and he did some vocal lines to it and and right around that time i got the call to uh, to audition for ozzy and and i remember telling the management like look guys i i have to bail from this project because something really huge came up and i remember the manager going is it three letters or four letters and I said, it's four. <laughs> that's classic yes uh, and, and you know obviously what where, where i'm getting at is, is that you know i went on to you know to what I did with Ozzy, and then they did Unisonic, you know, they filled in the project with Michael Kiske, and then they brought in Kai Hansen, and that became Unisonic. And I hadn't talked to Dennis for several years, and I think it was around 2016 that the same manager kind of like got us in touch together again, and they were like, yeah, you, you, you two guys, you should write together. Like, it seems like you guys would work well together. Dennis needs somebody to kick him in the ass, and you guys, you need like a, a solid songwriting partner, and uh, and, and he was right, you know, and he put us in touch and we revisited those old songs and we basically made that Firewind record, which was uh, called Immortals in 2017. And we've been working together ever since, basically. We made two Firewind records and, uh, you know, the previous solo record that I did. And I mean, on this one, I didn't co-write with Dennis because it was all music. There was no vocals. And uh, so usually I will do the, the music and Dennis will do the vocal lines and lyrics. But on this one, you know, I just asked him to mix the record because I, he's a multi-talented guy. And I, I said, you know, dude, you should mix this. And I said, if you want, you, you should play bass as well. <laughs> I had already recorded the bass myself, but I said, you're a much better bass player than me. So, so that's how it happened. 
So you also, the, the CD contains a couple of live bonus tracks. Where were those recorded at? Were they on the Fearless Tour? With, obviously, they were on the Fearless Tour with Dennis. Yes. But, uh, was, where were those tracks recorded from? That was right in Hungary, Budapest. Uh, it was, uh, I think, the last night of the headline tour. And we were recording a bunch of shows on that tour, a front of house guy. But uh, then that recording came out really well, really nice. And um, went back home and then... You know, Dennis mixed it, mastered it again, you know, and uh, we sent it to to the record label. And then we're like, yeah, great. I said, no, maybe we can put out, I mean, live records isn't what it used to be, obviously. So maybe we can put out like a limited edition or something. Maybe make a couple of thousand records out there for the diehards or something. And um, so we did like a, an EP, a digital EP called Live in Budapest Part 1. But then there was no part two. There was nothing for years. Yeah, I've noticed that. Yeah, we're like, where's part two? I'm like, there is no part two. <laughs> so, so I thought, you know, I, I think it, the whole thing just kind of got forgotten because I went back into the environment and like the whole thing. And, and, and I said to the label, look, we have these recordings. You know, it's just sitting there. It's mixed, mastered. I said, I want to offer some value for money here to the to the fans, you know. So let's put out the new album on CD. I mean, CD sales are shit nowadays, anyways. Yeah. So let's let's just put out yeah. the CD, but make it double CD. With, you know, include like some tracks from that Budapest show. So that's what we're doing. Because I don't think, honestly, guys, I don't think there will ever be a live in Budapest full on release because the the back catalog is with another label, is with Century Media, so there would be copyright issues. So, you know, unless I get all the rights back, I don't think there's going to be a proper live album like that with my whole catalog. So, yeah. you know, this is better than nothing. And it's it's cool. You get seven bonus tracks. Well, the original Live in Budapest Part 1, you did have an awesome cover of the Thin Lizzy classic, Cold Sweat. Can you explain the decision to, to choose that song to cover? Because, honestly, it's not one that you typically hear all the time. But, man, what a great fucking song. And you guys totally smoked it. Thank you. Uh, it's a great song, of course. I'm a Big Tim Lizzy fan, and, and I'm a big John Sykes fan, and why not? It's a great rocker, you know, whenever we play it, it goes down great. And it's an easy song to vamp to, to rock to, and um, it just became one of those things where we jammed it out at rehearsals, and then we kept it on the live set. Man, I remember when we, we played it in Ireland, people went apeshit. They That's were right. like, whoa, oh. it's like play, playing the national anthem there. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. That would have yeah, been amazing. Yeah, if you play Tim Lizzy to the Irish, they, they love it, so... Yeah, so you know we kept it in there. You know we kept it. We recorded it and we kept it, and it's 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 a great song. And it's actually going to be on your new release as well. It looks like it's going to be on the bonus disc. Yeah, I included it there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Same version. Same. Same. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. Guess you also appeared on. I was kind of curious to get your take. You ended up on the Jason Baker album, and you were on Valley of Fire. How did you come about getting? I don't know. I don't say selected, or did you kind of put in to be involved in that? collaboration there were so many smoking guitar players in there how did you get involved with that one yeah uh, jason actually actually reached out and selected me he asked me to, to play solo and, nice and uh yeah it was a huge honor you know and um and it was like a, a i mean it took him obviously years to make that project and at some point his engineer got in touch and he just told me look this is just like long track and just record whatever you like and send it back and do it different takes and do different things and we'll kind of like patch it all together and I did like an electric solo and then I did an acoustic solo and funnily, funnily enough they just chose they just chose picked the, the acoustic solo maybe because everybody else played electric and uh, I'm not really an acoustic player but yeah there you have it. I'd like to ask a little bit about some of the guest appearances you have done because you've actually played with some of my favorite bands and you you actually do dabble a lot in a little bit more of the extreme metal so like you've played with Rotting Christ which I know are, are also. Uh, bands from Greece. Uh, you've played with Old Man's Child, and and of course you've played with Tiamat, which is is definitely one of my favorite bands. Have you ever thought about maybe going in that direction for a full record, or can you talk a little bit about recording with those bands? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm also into extreme metal as well, and all kinds of stuff. You know, I don't. Something sounds good. It's cool. All these guys are buddies of mine, uh, or acquaintances, acquaintances from from studios or from touring or whatever, and. Whenever somebody, you know, a friend like that asks me for a solo, you know, I'll, I'll, I won't turn it down you know, because I, I, I jumped at opportunities like that because it's cool for everybody. And um, yeah, I mean, like I said, Rodden Christ is probably the, uh, you know, the premier heavy metal band here in Greece. And uh, when I, when they asked me to do a solo, of course, you know, I accepted. And then I think the Old Man's Child uh, session was uh, at the studio, Studio Fredman at the time that we were, they were recording there and I was 
and I was kind of like hanging out there for a while because I was starting a band with a producer, Frederick Nostrum. Yeah, and I was like, I happened to be in the studio and they were like, hey, we need some cool solo. So I went in there and, and played some stuff. You know, it's interesting you bring up this whole thing if I, if I was ever to do something like that. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. You know, I, it, it could be cool to do, uh, you know, something that's on that side of things, you know, with, with, uh, with growling vocals again. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at a point where I'm taking off things off the bucket list on my solo career. So, I mean, I just did the first instrumental record. But we'll see where that takes me. And obviously you did Night Rage in the past, which had a lot of aggressive vocals as well. So you've definitely dabbled in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. You know, I started with Night Rage as well. And um, I toured with Arch Enemy for a while. So, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I, I don't consider myself like an expert at that kind of stuff. Yeah, I certainly did enjoy doing that, you know, especially when I was younger. Right. Yeah. I think when we get older, we all start to mellow a little bit. For sure. Yeah, I have. you play bluesier when you get older. <laughs> just, <laughs> right. Just a little. Just a little. Uh, Gus, you mentioned earlier when you got the call to audition for Ozzy. So, can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Did you put in for an audition? Did they reach out to you first? How did that process begin? No, I, I didn't know that he was looking for somebody. You know, I was. I think somebody from the management just reached out and emailed me. That's how it happened. You know, just asked me. I guess I was on the radar somehow that time i guess i was starting to you know was one of the kind of like talked about guys on the metal scene you know and somehow somebody noticed me at the office and put my name there on the list and i mean it's it was it's always like this mysterious stories you know it's uh you know whenever i i asked him as well I'm like, how did you guys find me like yeah it was always like never a clear answer <laughs> just somehow knew about me and uh just you know from being around and making records and touring and you know it was I guess I was on some kind of a short list and story goes that they tried out a bunch of guys and they, when they showed him my video or something, I, you know, as he said, well, that's, that's the guy, that's the guy. And they said, well, you know, there's a little problem. He's like on the other side of the world. He's in Greece. And we're like, okay, well, whatever. Let's get him over and try it out. And, and that's how it happened. Well, obviously, Ozzy didn't see my video, or he would have chosen me. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, pretty sure he he, <laughs> he could have seen more guitar players. <laughs> Do you know Gus? If if there were anybody else that was up for the gig that you know went on to become famous, or that was you know a hot player at the time? Uh, I I know I I found out later that Jeff Lynne's auditioned, but he didn't get the gig. Wow. Um, yeah, I heard he was pretty upset about that too. I read that in an interview. Well, you know, Jack has always had his finger on the pulse of the metal scene. We did a, an episode recently about Ozfest and how Jack would usually find the up-and-coming bands before they were huge, and then they would get on Ozfest at a lower slot, and then years later return as a headliner. You know, and he was mm -hmm. always pretty integral. He might have been on the, you might have been on his radar as one of the better players out there. It could have been. You know, maybe they had seen me with Arch Enemy because I was at Ozfest 2005, so right. maybe they had they had seen me there. That could be it. We may have figured it out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I did read an interview. You know, I wanted to do a little research where uh, Ozzy did say before you come out. You know, of course, your first gig was at the BlizzCon in uh, Anaheim, California, and that was in August of 2009, August 22nd. Ozzy did admit a few months earlier, before that, in the early summer, that he had auditioned a Greek guitar player, but he didn't give your name. So I think you were definitely on the radar for a while, and I think they knew maybe even before you did that you were definitely the guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had gotten the gig way before that thing was announced. And, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I did my audition around May, end of May. And I was told, you know, don't say anything for a while until we announce it. And um, I think Ozzy wasn't supposed to say anything. I think it was just, you know, typical Ozzy uh, kind of thing, you know, where he just, oops, I just said it. <laughs> right. Man. But and, for uh, you, that's such a hard secret to keep for oh that long. Gosh. It was because you can imagine when that happened. That day, my phone went off. It was like everybody was like, it has to be you. It has to be you. There's nobody else from Greece. Like, it has to be you. Like, all the magazines were calling me up, all my friends, like, all, like, everybody. And I was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I, I really <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Moving on to the recording of Scream, which, you know, obviously Josh and I are big fans of. You played all the rhythms on that as well. I think a lot of people just assume you played the leads, but but you actually came in and played all the rhythms. How much freedom did they give you to kind of make them your own style? 
No, they did give me freedom. They were like, you know, go in there and, and you know, do it how you would do it, how a guitar player would approach it, you know, because obviously Kevin Jerko, he, he wrote the songs, but he's not a guitar player. So he was doing a lot of editing and stuff. So uh, both Ozzy and Sharon encouraged me for that. And Kevin encouraged me for that. They were like, you know, just do you, man, do it as much as that's possible, you know. Uh, it was a challenge because I didn't write any of the stuff. So right. I had to somehow make it sound like, you know, it, yeah, it's an it's natural for me and uh and add of course all the all the little melodies and, and parts and, and other guitar parts and, and of course with the rhythms, yeah. You know, you go in there and you play over these processed kind of riffs and you have to make them sound like it they came out of out of jamming or something and um and so it was, it was like a challenging a, project, you know, it was a challenging project, yeah. Yeah, and make them sound like an Aussie album. You know, and so that you, too, you, you, you know, you have to kind of yeah. somehow leave that mark on there that you know that classic Aussie, which, and even for an Aussie record, that's like a very different kind of Aussie record, very modern at the time, you know, almost a little bit, um, what's the word, a little bit industrial, maybe? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So there's all these elements on there, but then somehow, you know, we have to still kind of leave a few things in there that will remind of, you know, the, the past guitar players that were there, you know, have something that will kind of be reminiscent of Randy or Zach or something. But at the same time, it has to be you. It's it's, it's a hard job description. <laughs> that's what to be in. And, you know, uh, Kevin did play drums on the album. And a lot of people think it's Tommy because he was credited. But it's not Tommy Clefetis right. on the album. It's Kevin Cherko who did play drums. He's a natural drummer. But he's known for slick productions anyway. He, he literally builds albums from the ground up. So, yeah, you're going in in a whole new direction. You know, yeah. just going in the studio in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... Uh was already, you know, pre-written, pre-recorded. Everything was done there. You know, it was just like, and you knew, you know, the, the songs had final shape and form. You know, the vocal melodies were there. So you have to be careful. You can't add too much because you can't interfere in certain places and overshadow Ozzy's voice. You know, he's he's a star. You know, you have to. So, you know what I mean? So it's like all these things you have to take into consideration. But at the same time, the album has to have a lot of guitar. So how do you do right. that in there? I, I can tell you that, you know, looking back, I mean, I learned a lot by doing um, a session like that because I wasn't used to it. I was only used to making my own stuff. How long were you in there? Like, how long did you go in? How long did it take you to record your parts for that? I think we spent about five weeks there in the studio. So you had plenty of time to actually, you know, five weeks just for you to record your parts and kind of uh, put your spin on them. So they didn't rush you at all? No, not at all. No, I, I stayed there for, you know, they were like, come in here, do it, you know, for as long as you want. And so, yeah, we didn't leave until we were really ready with it. Uh, BlizzCon was in August of 2009, and Scream was released in June of 2010. I'm assuming this recording session would have happened somewhere around March of 2010. Uh, which one? The album? For, for, for Scream? Yeah. No, 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 no. It happened after BlizzCon. After, actually, after BlizzCon, what happened was I went back to Greece, and then they were like, I think that was kind of like a tryout thing. And then they were they were like, well, hey, uh, that went well. I mean, honestly, I thought that didn't go down so well. I was not very comfortable at that gig. And they were like, well, we thought that went well. Can you, can you come back and play another show? And I came back, went back to LA, and we did another festival. That, I think that was the Sunset Strip Festival in September. And then after that, I just hung out there for a few weeks. And, uh, you know, I just went down to Ozzy's house and his studio. And then he played me some of That's when I first heard of the material he was working and then I think I recorded November 2009, okay. something like that, or October or November. Like, uh, that's what I, that's when I, yeah, stayed there for a couple yeah, months and worked on the record. And then pretty much once that was done, once, like, the, the master was, like, done and delivered, everything happened so fast. Like, before you knew it, like, next month is, like, photo shoots. You know, we're flying here and here and then promo trip and this and that and warm-up shows or rehearsals actually then warm-up shows then like going on tour for two years like everything was happening like really fast so gus the for the screen released versions there are 14 songs that have been released with the three bonus tracks were there any other songs that you played on that have not been released yet as far as i remember no that was it i think that was all so all 14 songs that you played on were released eventually i think so yeah 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 so anything you could tell us about the three bonus tracks? I mean, they don't get talked about too much, but um, did you know going in these were going to be the, the added extras or was that not decided yet with Hand of the Enemy? No. At, at that time, there was no, nothing was decided what was going to be the single. There was like no talk about it. It was just like getting the album done. 
think all these things were decided after me and Kevin kind of like went home and finished the project. I think, you know, that was decided between the label and management, of course, you know, what's going to be the first single, blah, 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 and what's the bonus tracks and stuff. Like, I had no clue. I had no idea. I, th I think the only thing that we knew was that probably uh, Let Me Leave the Screen was going to be the single, the, the main single. I think that was the only clue that we had. Okay, that, because that was pretty obvious. That's the big song right there. No, I mean, I remember at that time, like even a, a song like um, Life Won't Wait, I think that was like a, a song that Kevin had made and he hadn't decided if he was going to even include it or finish it uh, on, for the record. And I was like, he played it for me. And I was like, dude, that's like a... That's a great song, you know. We should be yeah, that's trying a, yeah. to do something with it. Yeah, and, and I mean, that ended up being one of the singles. And um, so that goes to show you that it was a, a lot of the stuff was not decided. They were just gathering, like, I guess they probably went in there, tried to write 14, 15 songs and trying to come up with a great record, you know. So was Ozzy involved in writing the melodies for this or did Kevin do most of the writing? I think both of them were working on that, you know. I think Ozzy would kind of come downstairs, sing something, and then he would, Kevin would play him something and then maybe he would take it upstairs, make him a mix or a CD that he would listen to something and then come downstairs and because he had the studio in his house, you know, and then he would go downstairs and maybe work together on melodies and lyrics and stuff. But, I'm, you know, I was not there when all that happened, but uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure Ozzy was heavily involved with that. You mentioned earlier that they knew Let Me Hear You Scream would be the lead single. I've read before that that song underwent a whole lot of revisions on lyrics. So I wonder if maybe knowing that this song had the energy for a lead single, they wanted to make sure they got the lyrics right. So they kept going back to the drawing board and rewriting lyrics to make sure they got the right set. Yeah, I think even that song, you know, that song went through a lot of changes. And I think the original title was like Superman is Dead. <laughs> That's cool. Hey, yeah. guys, that I, is I, the I, kind of shit our show loves. Yeah, Thank that's you for that little so tidbit. cool. Yeah, so there you go. Okay. <laughs> I think that's what Ozzy wanted to call it. And then I think they just rewrote it. We're like, oh, no, okay, that's not a good title or whatever. So, and, and another thing was that I went back after I finished the record, like after like five or six weeks, like day and night working into this. And I think Sharon was, I think Sharon called me up and said, look, we want you to come back and play one solo again. I'm like, what? Which one? <laughs> the song, you know, that that's going to be the main single. And she's like, look, this is going to be the first time people are going to hear about you, like, as Ozzy's new guy. So it has to be, like, spectacular. It has to be, like, it has to have your, you know, sound on it. And I was like, oh, my God. And that's when I really got stressed. I was like, oh, shit. So isn't this something that I could do here from my studio? And say, no, no, you got to come over. You got to come back to L.A. And I'm like, oh. okay. I immediately started working out the parts again in my home studio and stuff and pretty much had decided what I was going to do. And then I went back to LA just like for a couple of days, just to re-record this. I think I just did the, the final lead. Yeah. I think I had probably played a different solo originally, which I don't really remember what it was, but I'm glad that Sharon made me come back and redo that because, you know, I think that's one of my best, uh, you know, that's one of my most iconic. You know, yeah, uh, not iconic, but you know that's like that's the the thing that if if anybody remembers anything from that era and that's that's the song, you know. So and and that is a solo. That's that's the stamp, you know. It's, if anybody will remember will remember who a guy Gus G was, that that's that's the song they will probably hear first. Well, you knocked it out of the park. So good yeah. job on that. I'd because. have to say your solo in time is exceptional, Gus. I, I that's the one I always go to where I'm just my jaw drops. I think you nailed time. Thank you, thank you. Actually, I, I, I love that song. It's one of my favorites on the record. And uh, I think one of the first things I played was that slide thing. And, I, and believe me, I'm not a slide player. I don't I don't play uh, well on my guitar. And I had done that even on, on the demo recording just to show him. And he loved that. He was like, wow, that's a great melody. we got to keep that. So that was like one of my first demo recordings of, you know, my first tryout before I went back and redid everything, you know. So... Um, Nice. So, yeah, I'm, I'm also proud of that song. Yeah. It's a great tune. It is. For me, for me, your lead tone on Life Won't Wait, the little outro where you're just on the little bends and stuff, I have always, from day one, just absolutely loved your tone on that. It got such a good sound. Thanks, yeah. I mean, it was a great production. I mean, I mean Kevin Jerkle, you know, whatever that guy touches, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's gold. Great engineering, great tone. We had... Uh, 
We were trying, you know, we were experimenting with, with new amps at the time. That was like Blackstar amps, which became like the brand that I've been using for 10 years. And that was like a new thing. And then we were trying out stuff. And yeah, really good guitar tones on that record. I, I agree with you. So I obviously have to ask the question that I know I want to know the answer to is what's in the vault? So did you and Ozzy sit down and, and ever flush out ideas and, and write together and do demos exist? And, you know, how, how did that situation come about? You know, we did write a couple of tunes uh, when the when the tour started. We would uh, I had a few riffs and I would record some sound checks with uh, with the guys and I gave him a couple of tunes that I had and um, and he actually did do vocal lines. He wrote vocal lines for two songs and we were thinking, okay, you know, if we're gonna go back and make another record, you know, these two, I mean, they were, they were pretty cool songs. I don't think he ever recorded them. He would just sing them to me. You know, he would just play back stuff that I gave him. And he would sing over like the vocal lines to me, like in the room, the hotel room. And I was like, wow, <laughs> it was just amazing just sitting there hearing Ozzy kind of coming up with, with melodies, you know? Yeah, personally um, for me, I would have loved to see you do an album with Ozzy because the one thing that I do think some modern Ozzy is missing is the guitar riff. And uh, that's not a knock on scream. I think you did great with the material you had, but I think you would have brought back that era of ultimate sin no rest for the wicked just that classic ozzy guitar tone and sound yeah yeah i know what you mean and that's the kind of record that i would have you know uh that i would have felt comfortable doing with him as well because i think that's really in my uh, right up my alley so to speak you know that's that's the kind of stuff i grew up with and that's the stuff i love and i can i can come up with that stuff like that kind of material no problem and uh but you know as history showed us we never got to do another one you know it's, it, Halfway through that tour, that whole Black Sabbath reunion was kind of planned ahead. And um, yeah, then that went on for a couple of years. And um, yeah, and then Ozzy went into his next phase, you know, his, his farewell tour and all that. Guess I can honestly tell you, and this isn't a knock on anyone else, but when it was announced that Zach was coming back, Dan and I, and we have a third friend that talks Ozzy with us a whole lot. His name is Ryan. He's been on the show a few times. We all were truly disappointed because we were looking so forward to a new album with you that you could help write and contribute with, uh, you know, and put your true stamp on. And we were all very you know, disappointed with that announcement because we were, we just knew that a new album would be in the wings somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know what you mean. You know, I, uh, I, I also hope that at least I could have done like an album where they would give me the opportunity to, to write stuff with him. And then of course, you know, but, but, you know, he's a solo artist and he has, Know, his own plans and do whatever he needs to do. And I understand that because I'm a solo artist nowadays. And, uh, right. Totally. <laughs> sometimes yeah. you just can't do totally. what everybody else wants you to do. And uh, I think, uh, you know, he's planned his career out perfectly, you know, where Black Sabbath, in my opinion, I mean, Black Sabbath's reunion was so successful. And what can he do to, to, to follow up to that? I guess, you know, I and mean, then he's, he's getting older as well. You know, so I guess, uh, solo farewell tour made sense and uh who do you do that with obviously you know randy rhodes is not here with us so you know zach wilde is yeah his next most iconic player so from that aspect you know i'm, I'm glad and as a fan and i said it back then i'm, I'm really happy that i you know, see those guys back again and, and i knew eventually that would happen um but yeah and i also understand what you mean that you know it would have been nice to actually do some new songs together and uh tr you know at least get a get a chance to see what um Know, what I could, uh, what I could offer, you know, like music-wise and stuff. But at the same time, you know, that's one thing, and the other thing is like it's good to focus on what actually happened, not what didn't happen. And I have to say, I'm pretty happy and pleased because a lot of things, a lot of great things happened. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, not not many guys can can say that we're you know sitting in, in my in my position where I was there. So so I'm truly grateful for all that, you know. And, and again, then, and then also the positive thing is that, you know, I, it gave me a big platform to continue and, and keep on doing my own thing, which is great. I'm always grateful for that. Absolutely. You know, i got to say, and I think Dan will agree with me because we've had conversations about this, though. And I told you this previously when we spoke in 2018. I've seen Ozzy live 22 times. I think Dan has seen him 24, 25. 24. Yeah, 24. I can honestly tell you, Gus. When you and Tommy joined the band, you know, Blasco was already there, and you came yeah. in, and Tommy came in at the same time. There was a rejuvenation of energy in Ozzy on stage, and uh, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think you, it's, yeah. 
it, it was it was obvious. Anyone that had seen him live several times, that screen tour, he was in my opinion, might be the best tour I've ever seen him on because he seemed I, I so useful. For a fact, I can tell you for a fact that he was so he was really excited when me and Tommy came. You know, he definitely felt that new energy in the band. He uh, he was really excited. I mean, he the first leg of the tour, he just wanted to keep adding songs to the set list. I mean, by the time we got to Europe, or I think I think Japan, we were already doing like two hours and forty minute sets. Oh, and, and he was he was sixty one years old then. You know, that was like <laughs> ten years yeah. ago. I mean, that goes on to show you, he was really excited. He was, you know, jumping up and down, and he was just crazy. He was really into it. Especially, like I said, the first leg, there was a lot of fun. You know, we would all hang out during the off days and go to dinners and stuff, and he would, like, discuss set lists and, like, let's add more, let's do more, let's do more. So, Oh, that is he, awesome. So, yeah, I could I could definitely feel that. And and, and the reviews were, I remember the, the, the live reviews we were getting from the shows were great as well. So, um they should have been. Yeah, I think that band was undeniably good. Yeah, I don't know. If it's, yeah, I, I don't know if it's like the. I'm not gonna go into you know because the, the fan favorite is a different. It's subjective. Everybody has their own favorite times and their favorite eras of each band and each artist they love. So I'm not gonna say anything. I'm not gonna comment on that. But you know, I'm. I am gonna say that I think the band was undeniably very good. Yeah, it had its own unique energy, which was fantastic. It did. And Ozzy has spoke a ton since about, I want to get a band together and do a band record. He has spoke for, you know, 12 years now about wanting to have a band atmosphere and not so much a solo artist atmosphere. And I think he had that with you guys. I mean, clearly they kept Tommy around forever. He's still there. He did the Sabbath tours. But I think with you guys, and of course Adam Wakeman goes in on that also. I can't leave Adam out because he's, Definitely a huge part of what Ozzy does these days. I think he truly had that band atmosphere, and I think that's what had him so excited for you guys. And like you said, when you're adding songs to the set list, you're, you're excited about it. Can you tell us, I know you guys threw in Killer of Giants a few nights, you threw in The Ultimate Scene. Is there any more songs that you guys done that typically weren't in the set list that maybe we had didn't realize you, you ever played? Or attempted? Ooh, I mean, there was a couple of songs that we played, maybe once. I think there was, we did the... Um, I think we did The Ultimate Sin, the title track, only for one show in Helsinki. I think it's somewhere up on, on YouTube. You can find that. We've seen it. And <laughs> what? Yeah. I said we've seen it. Oh, you've seen it? Okay. Yeah. So I'm yeah. pretty sure you have. Yeah, you guys are diehard. So yeah. the only other thing was I remember that right before the last European leg of the tour, and that was going to wrap the, the whole year, the world tour of the, of the album, of that album cycle, I think that's when uh, it was going to be the 30th anniversary of Diary of a Madman and Blizzard. Yes. Um, it's kind of funny because because uh, uh, during one of the one of the tour breaks, I, I got married. So and, and Ozzy came to my wedding, you know, and, and <laughs> he was like <laughs> like minutes before we went to church, we were sitting like in my room, and he was like, "Gus, we should play both albums back to back when we come back to rehearsals." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> We gotta go to the church now, you know. <laughs> People would have lost their minds, Gus, if that did ever oh, come. People would have lost their minds if that oh, would have yeah. happened. You know what? We actually did that. He called the band there, he called the crew. We rehearsed like we all got together like ten days before the tour started. We actually the the band learned the first two records back to back, and we we were playing that. And I think Ozzy just came down to one rehearsal in the end. We just went through a couple of the songs. He was like, "Ah, fuck it, I can't sing that stuff anymore. Whatever, you know, let's just go back to the other stuff." So, right. <laughs> yeah, it would be great to hear like "You Can't Kill Rock and Roll" live, or even SATO songs that have never been played before. Yeah, we did that in the rehearsal. He 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 sang through a, a few of those, and he did great. But I, I just think he was not. You know what? Honestly, he could sing them. He could do it. I know he could, and he he did great at rehearsal. I think he was just maybe not feeling as comfortable because if it's a song that you never, like you recorded, but you have never tried to play it, like it's kind of odd to try it like 40 years later, you know? So I, I totally understand how he probably felt. So he was like, ah, you know, let's stick to what we know and give people a good show. So I think that was his, his, his angle. And they were songs that were challenging even when they were written. Right. Those songs are hard to sing. One thing about Ozzy Osbourne that, that really annoys Dan and I is when people try to discredit what an amazing vocalist he actually is. Some of those songs are really up there. Oh, yes. He was singing really high back then. Really high. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So yeah, yeah, and, and he's unique. Nobody else sounds like Ozzy. That's so, the key. Yeah. I, I, don't know, I, I don't know why why people like would say certain things like like you mentioned, but uh, yeah, I mean, in my opinion, like back then he was untouchable. I mean, even like in the in the Sabbath stuff, like you know, Sabbath bloody Sabbath and stuff, he was untouchable. It's sabotage, yeah. Just, Right, sabotage. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw a great uh, article recently about Michael Sweet from Striper. He did a cover of uh, After Forever, and he said, man, you just don't realize how high Ozzy is until you try to cover these songs. And as we all know, Michael Sweet can hit notes that are just completely ungodly, you know, and he, he was even struggling with some of those in the studio. Yeah, I think people don't realize that because Ozzy never had this operatic style that, you know, somebody like Dio or Halford has. So, because he was more of a blues singer, you know, and the people thought he sing, he sings simpler stuff, but it's that's not the case at all. Yeah, and he doesn't use any vibrato either, which a lot of people don't realize. So, you know, you have to really cleanly hit that note if you're a singer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what is uh, next for Gus G? I mean, I know you you released your instrumental record, which comes out October 8th, and we're all super excited about that. But are you any plans to tour? Um, are you working on new stuff? Well, tour, that's a, a word I haven't heard for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You know, it's like I, sure. I, I, did, I really didn't make this record thinking that I'm going to go into a world tour with it. So I'm not really expecting to play any shows anytime soon. I mean, I have a couple of festivals here in Europe that I'm, we're supposed to do. We'll see if that happens. We're supposed to do a 20th anniversary tour with Firewind next May uh, in Europe. So, you know, if, if club shows are happening, we will definitely go out there and do that. So we're kind of like monitoring the situation, see how it goes. Um, I mean, we have offers to do a whole world tour, but I'm not too comfortable yet to start booking shows in the States and Australia and Asia and stuff until it winds down. Hey, we totally get it. Dan had tickets to see Megadeth this past weekend at okay. a sold-out show in Arizona and just simply chose not to go because of COVID ramping back up. And, you know, we got to be safe. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And of course, first of all, yeah, safety first. And then, of course, you know, for us, you know, setting this up is a lot of work, you know, and, uh, you know, getting visas and flights and logistics and crew and, and, and rehearsals and all that stuff. And, you know, preparation, all that for months to just to for something that is just so much in the air. It's, it's not worth it for me right now. It's uh, it, I'd rather just sit here and wait and, and, and wait until you know, we are all, it's all safe again to go back into clubs or bigger festivals or whatever. So yeah, absolutely. Are you doing any writing right now? Are you uh, like, I, I always wanted to ask, you know, when you come up with a riff, do you know what's going to be for your gushy solo project? Is it going to be for a violin song? How do you kind of go through that process? Um, not, and, you know, I don't really know. I, I just write stuff, you know, like if I have an idea, I'll just put it down and I'll, Maybe it's just a simple riff, or maybe it's like a few riffs, and maybe I have a whole song at the same time, and I'll just record it and put, you know, leave it there for a while in some folder on my hard disk, and I'll revisit the, those riffs like later, a few months later, and see how I feel about it. And depending the mood and what is what it, the concept is or where I'm going next, I'll I'll kind of like pick and choose and start, you know, digging deeper into those rough ideas again. So. I mean, at this point, um, I'm not sure what the next album will be. It could be another firing record or it could be another solo record. Too early to tell, honestly. I mean, this solo record was not really planned, like I said before. It was, it was more like, okay, I'm going to be stuck here at home for a year, so maybe I should do something with my time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so right now, I don't, know, I don't know what's coming up next. You know, like I said, we were supposed to do this tour next spring. Maybe, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe we should uh, prepare some new songs to see. Maybe we can go in the studio right after that, but maybe not. Who knows? Right. <laughs> Who knows how the world is next year? Well, it's like I tell Dan all the time, and I tell people, an artist has to paint, you know, and you're an artist. And if you're at home, you're going to be playing your guitar and writing recordings. It's, it's what you do. So it's just yeah. a matter of, us, yeah, just getting enough material together for a project to, to move forward with it, you know? Yeah, I always have enough material laying around, and, and, you know, lately I haven't been writing much because I've been building a new studio, so so I'm pretty <laughs> I'm pretty tired now. I'm just sitting here and looking at the room, and I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> I have to get some rest before I can pick up the guitar and write again. <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, eventually, you know, music will come to me. And, and like I said, I'll, I'll compile ideas and then make a decision. I, I always do that every every year. That's how I do it, you know. Put down all these riffs and ideas, and then I kind of like go back and listen to them. And then that, that'll give me um, an idea or an inspiration where to go next. I think that's the James Hetfield method, right? They always have those Metallica tapes laying around that, that he pulls his riffs from. Oh, is that what he does? Yeah. Yeah, which is cool. You know what? I think it's important to write ideas whenever they come to you and just somehow document that because you never know when you're going to need them. Um, that has saved me so many times. Absolutely. Um, the greatest invention a guitar player has had in the past 50 years is the iPhone because you always have that little recorder on there. So if you're jamming, right. you, know, you hit record on the iPhone. I know... I think all guitar players have an iPhone full of riffs. Yeah, same here. I think Kirk Hammond had that one too, but I think he lost it. He lost it, yeah. Kirk <laughs> lost it, yeah. One, one of my favorite quotes of all time actually is Paul McCartney. I'm a gigantic Beatles fan as well, but Paul McCartney said the Beatles had to write memorable songs because we had to remember them because there wasn't a recording process back then. And I just thought that was a great quote. It is, you know, that that is, I, I used to do that like 15 years ago. I would, I would kind of like push myself to do that before I also had like, you know, the home studio and stuff. And I would like, um, if I came up with a riff, I would try to put some silly words into the riff so I can kind of, you know, be able to sing it. And I would sleep. And then the next morning I said, if I wake up tomorrow and I, would, I remember this silly riff, it, it means that it's good enough that I can actually spend some time on it. If not, then let it go. <laughs> that's right. So, if you can't remember it the next day. Process. Yeah, exactly. So I just want to say, closing, thank you for your time. I was super excited when you got the Aussie gig because I've been a fan of yours personally since the early 2000s with Dream Evil, Mystic Prophecy, oh, wow. Firewind, uh, Night Rage. I, I'm just, I was so excited when Gus G got the Aussie, Aussie gig. So uh, definitely thank you for your time. You've been amazing and hopefully have you on again. And thank you for so much insight. And we wish you nothing but the best with your new record. Thank you guys. Thanks so much for having me on your show and good luck with everything on your, on your new podcast. Um, thank you. And, uh, yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Guys, thank you so much for your time and you've been excellent. You're nothing but a gentleman. We'll do everything we can to help you promote this new album and good luck with the future, man. We hope it's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day there, guys. Take care. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. By the way, I'm Dan, and that's Josh. Obviously, Dan I'm not the Josh, one. Yes. I'm not Got the it. one that sounds uh, Southern states of America. <laughs> <laughs> Josh is the one with the Southern accent. Yeah, Josh is the one with the Southern accent. I like to bust his balls. Hey, listen, I grew up a Randy Rhodes fanatic. I'm still a Randy Rhodes fanatic, and I used to call his mother on the phone and talk to her sometimes. You did and really. Every it, oh yeah, she was the sweetest man. I talked to her probably five or six times, and every time I would call. I would reintroduce myself and she'd say, Oh, Josh, I know who you are. I could recognize that accent anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, man. Yeah. <laughs>